You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors 39, and our guest today is Fiola Foley. Fiola has been a professional athlete. She worked as a race organizer, and she spent time working for BMC Switzerland. That's bike racing for you. Currently, she's a communications and PR person at Komoot. Komoot, if you don't know, is an outdoors app that you can use for planning your routes, for cycling and running and hiking. It's quite good, actually, and we talk about it a little bit, but that episode is not about Komoot. What that episode is about is about cycling, about cycling industry, and how we enjoy outdoors while cycling. And speaking about enjoyment, Fiola is actually one of those people who are enjoying her job. Imagine that, right? If you're not enjoying your job, you're doing something wrong. So Fiola definitely is doing everything right because she enjoys her job. And as we know, if you love your work, you never feel like working. So definitely very, very interesting to hear from Fiola, especially if you don't like your job. Maybe you can pick up some tips what to do to change that. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Fiola Foley. With us today, Fiola Foley. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Tommy? Very good. Thanks for uh, accepting invitation. I know you're very, very busy. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> And it and it uh, we're supposed to record that podcast like a couple months ago last year, in fact, but it's just never worked out. I think you were some traveling somewhere, and we never missed the time. And like, but you know, you were actually uh, we were we were talking earlier on the on the phone. You were actually requested guest. I had a few people contacting me and say, you know, you should you should get the fuel on the on the podcast. You, you know, should she never just, believe them. She, <laughs> whatever they say. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, I think I think I think I think they write. I think they write because you're you said I I don't remember where where I read that, but you said that you love your job because your job is your lifestyle, and it's related to outdoors. So I mean, like, come on, that's outdoors podcast right here. Exactly. I guess I'm one of the few people that can say that they love their job and their job is in the outdoors because I know that some people do work in the outdoor industry and there's things that don't really match up. Maybe they don't make a, a lot of money or mm. they get tired of guiding people or they get older, but I'm pretty happy with uh, my lot, let's say. It, I heard that like 70% 70 pe 70 of people don't like their job or maybe hate their job. I can just be very grateful that like... What are they doing? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I guess, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can get all philosophical about this, but I probably mm -hmm. won't on this please podcast. Please do, please do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do get philosophical. I, sometimes I think like I've just been very lucky, and but then I did put in quite a lot of effort and time mm -hmm. not working in jobs that I didn't like, but really working hard I suppose to get myself to the position where I could mm -hmm. score or land a job like this yes so it was a bit of a graft sometimes it's but, always um, ne it's never given right yeah very seldom 
yeah, you have to make the right choices and you have to persevere and be patient and talk to the right people and put and, yourself and out was there. That, was that something that you set out to do? Was that the goal that you said, like, yeah, I want to get a job that will, you know, doesn't, yeah, that will not feel like a job? I guess I've always, I've been very lucky, like I said. I was teaching for a while. Um, I was at primary school teaching until I was, th I, I quit rowing when I was 25 because I was sort of full-time mm -hmm. um, athlete for a while. And then I thought until I was 30. And then due to an event that I was working on, I changed tack completely. Mm -hmm. um, because I, the event I was working on was an outdoor event. Mm -hmm. And I thought, mm, I don't know if I want to do my master's in, in education. I think I'd rather do it in mm -hmm. uh, PR, event PR, um, right. or PR in general. So I did a, a postgrad in um, new communication and media. And and then I I ended up leaving Ireland again. <laughs> Uh, that year because it was very hard to get jobs um mm -hmm. the recession had started um okay. and then i went to uh, zurich and i ended up working in luxury consumer goods mm -hmm. and it was a really really amazing company it was swarovski one of the bigger like um was there the optics division i was in the consumer goods division okay, so it's not so optics is not consumer Uh, no, in their business, there's about seven or eight departments oh, okay, uh, or okay. businesses within the Swarovski sort mm -hmm. of canopy, I suppose, yeah. uh, or portfolio. And the consumer goods business is all of the jewelry and the figurines and okay. lighting and, and the, the stuff that goes into houses like vases and oh, things okay. like that. I thought that they're binoculars and scopes and stuff That's like that. That's only one of six businesses. Yeah, but I thought yeah. it's going to be in this uh, kind of consumer part. No, it's managed. I think that's managed out of Tyrol in Austria. Okay. Um, but then I was work when I worked for Swarovski. I was very fortunate to amass quite some experience in a bigger company, mm -hmm. marketing and social mm -hmm. media. Okay. That's what okay. I was doing. Um, and then, but I had it in my head for quite clearly that I wanted to work in the bike industry or in the sports industry or in the outdoor industry. So. I was like really scouring the whole time, looking for opportunities, interviewing. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I got given a break, um, mm -hmm. which was um, at BMC Switzerland, um, which right. is one of the top 10 bike brands, I suppose, globally. Mm -hmm. And um, and there, you know, I, I really put out, put in the time and made my, my way up through the company until I was head of um, global communications mm -hmm. and managing a team there and all of the, yeah. The global communications, I suppose, the job description is pretty self-explanatory. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, and and so so you were not involved in a, you know, like a cycling and bicycle part of of it. It was more of a communication and, and oh, stuff. involved in the cycling. Oh, you yeah. were on the like on the events during events, like when the BMC. Did they have yeah. a, like a like a like a racing team? Mm -hmm. or did they, they had four so... racing teams. Okay, so you were with those teams and. Yeah, the job was. So I had multi, I suppose, multi was multifaceted. Mm -hmm. I was the liaison for the teams. Um, so generally when we launched a new product and we wanted the riders to sort of help us to market the product, I would deliver a lot of the um, messages behind the bike and what ah, that bike okay. does and why it's different and how it's going to help you perform. So I would go to the team camps. So you were responsible to, to for making all those lads to go and buy, buy BMC bike and all those people who are like, no, BMC is the best bike in the world. That's that's your fault or or your uh, It's quite, <laughs> it's a, it was one small part of the job, let's put it uh, that way. So mm. basically forming and delivering the message around the bikes mm -hmm. and... um 
coordinating all the translations, uh, all the content that went out in social media, how we wanted the teams to market the bikes, make sure that they said the right thing Mm. about the bike. Um, all the way to so it was like retailer and consumer sure, team. Sorry, sorry, I have to be that make sure they say the right thing about the bike. So were they like not allowed to say bad things about the bike? It's not about bad or bad or um, good things. It was more about the the qualities. The, the what what do we want the um, general public? Uh, yeah. So is this bike about? cornering is it because it's light going uphill or is it a bike for a sprinter or is it a bike for an endurance rider Mm -hmm. um so they had to um basically explain like what the philosophy behind that particular bike is and know that when someone asks a question about the technology of the bike they would have Mm -hmm. to know what it is okay yeah and you had to explain that to them i always thought that they would know no, but the guy um, knows like I'm a sprinter, right? So the bike I have is for sprinters that, you know, there's a that. lot more to it than that. Like where mm-hmm. the stiffness is on the bike, whether it's oh, focused okay, on the bottom okay. bracket or whether it's more on the front or the mm-hmm. rear. Um, there's a lot going into bike technology, right. a lot more than I think a lot of people that are, aren't really tuned into the I whole scene. I would love to dive into that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's I was always wonder- I was always wondering about the brake calipers and some, I think on the time machine. The the brake calipers at the at the bottom yeah, of the triangle. They're integrated, and, yeah. And why is why is that? It's, Aerodynamics. But it's very prone to like getting all the gunk and mud in it. It wouldn't matter if you're if you're really focused on time trialing, um, mm-hmm. then you'd be cleaning your bike after every time trial mm-hmm. session, I suppose, because typically a time trialer doesn't ride that bike the whole time. Yeah. Um, it's just coming out when they really want to nail a time. Sure. So, so it didn't ma- didn't matter at all. No, sometimes they're not the most practical but it's mm-hmm. not a lot of bikes at that level aren't aimed at practicality yeah. it's more about breaking records and yeah. yeah so in other words that the that the cyclist who's bringing time machine bike time machine onto uh, saturday cycle with a group didn't get your message and got the wrong bike because I think it's clear you shouldn't be using it in that <laughs> correct <laughs> me if i'm wrong but if anyone turns up on a group ride with a with um aero bars <laughs> I, no, I think that they should probably stay at the back of the group because i think those bikes aren't yeah. super um it actually mobile. didn't have aero bars it has like a normal drop bar oh it was the road it was a road to but it was time called machine. time machine there's two time machines there's a tt bike um with the aero bars which is like you know yeah. the aero bike or yeah. the time trial bike time. and then there's a time machine road which is like oh so that would that had to be this that one. would be like the sprinter's bike right, yeah and that right, also right. has integrated right, um right, right. rear brakes in the okay. rear so triangle all fine. so we cleared that out all yeah fine. yeah <laughs> all fine, all fine. <laughs> it's like a sparring session on bike technology <laughs> No, I'm 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 really interested in all this. You know, yeah. I, I watched the video. Uh, it was some other some other brand of bikes where they were explaining how the carbon is layered in, yeah. in that direction, in another direction because it has to Lay be stiff. Yeah. It has to be stiff here and and not stiff there and kind of absorb the the vibration that way. And it was like, wow, it's like yeah. you know, the whole whole engineering. It's it's interesting because since I've moved home to Ireland, like I mean Switzerland. You know, it's a country where people 
the GDP is quite high. People have a lot of disposable income. Um, a lot of people are into endurance sports already. So mm-hmm. spending like six thousand euros on a bike is like normal. Nothing. Four four thousand people wouldn't really mm-hmm. question it. It's kind of like if you really want to ride bikes, whether it's mountain bike or road, mm-hmm. investing four thousand euros mm-hmm. in your equipment is like normal, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I wouldn't know if they really, you know, invest a lot of time researching the technology behind the bike but they do appreciate Mm -hmm. the aesthetics I mean Swiss design it's famous Mm -hmm. so they know when they look at a bike okay this is a really nice bike um and Ireland I feel like we're getting there but we're not quite there Mm -hmm. because for a lot of people you know to invest that amount of money in in a piece of equipment means that you must be very serious like Mm -hmm. and taking triathlon to the next level and you're training Mm -hmm. like I don't know 15 20 hours a week um so we still have to get there. But um, yeah, it's nice to see that in some of the groups that I'm riding in now, people are, they are investing a bit more money in their equipment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's nice to do that because you get so much back from your sport. It's nice to ride mm-hmm. good bikes if that's what you enjoy as well. So I, so I have a two, two, two questions. You are responsible for all the communication and kind of marketing around this. Not marketing, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. It was more like a... It was an element of the marketing, right? The message about what the bike is and so on. So my question I'm wondering, like, was the fact that the equipment was quite expensive Im- impacted your job in, in a way, like how you need to change the message, for example, for the markets like Ireland, where people not are not likely to buy such expensive equipment? Or no. was it like, no, it's just not our target audience and we don't care about them and we just... No, the messaging stays the same. What's different is we would have, let's say we would have like six or seven. Most most bike brands will have what we would call, I don't know, maybe maybe eight bikes, 10 bikes. And then within those bikes, the families of those Mm -hmm. bikes, you have different. Yeah price points they're yes. called in the cycling industry in the bike industry oh, okay, and then you would start to tweak the message so the 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 bike has like a the main bike is on a pedestal like that's your like the t-machine slr01 or the road machine 01 mm-hmm. um or the time machine 01 or whatever trail fox speed fox mm-hmm. all those bikes they'll they'll have one model that's like all out the mm-hmm. best components um it'll come with like if it's a road bike it'll have dura dura ace di2 and then the next one would be um ultegra di2 and then and then you'll have like maybe four component options for that particular amazing bike Mm -hmm. but then below that then you'll have another bike within that family which will be the o2 or the Mm -hmm. o3 yeah and they call it different names depending on the bike brand and the price will be less for that O2 mm. model or O2 group of bikes and the O3 group of bikes and that's reduced in price because of the componentry but also because of the carbon layup um, yeah. so they'll use lower grade carbon or they'll layer it um, in different parts of the bike so they can cut costs I suppose with the mm-hmm. production and then maybe some countries w- will only be delivered like five of those top level bikes and they might get 50 of the next level of bikes because the market wouldn't be able to afford well, tell or me, purchase. Tell me, about, tell me about it. When I was trying to buy the bike, you know, I, I look at the cat like I wanted this one. And then it was like hell to get it because yeah. like, no, no, you need to wait like eight months because it has to go from the United States somewhere yeah. to main reseller and then main reseller will send it like, oh God. Yeah, it's interesting because as consumers get really used to like getting what they want 
they expect the same from industries like the bike industry, which doesn't mm-hmm. operate. So let's say the processes are different there. The timelines are different. Really? Yeah, everything's coming that's out. Very of... inter- oh, that's, that's very interesting, because like yeah. I said, I was kind of like crushed against that particular problem. Uh, but I was more thinking that this is because of the specificity of Ireland, like you said, that there's like no. people are more inclined it is to buy demand. what's in the yeah. shop rather than, you know, the, here's a guy rolls in and says like, oh, I want this bike, this model and this like, and like we don't have it. Are you sure you, you know, you're a reseller of your, of your, your mm. BMC or Trek or Spesaros, whatever. Like, no, no, it's like... There's basically like a prediction phase that happens with the sales mm. teams from in the company and they'll say, okay, I think that my market will buy this amount of bikes and then those sales guys are un- put under pressure to sell, to make sure that the dealers will buy the bikes. Mm-hmm. And then the dealers are under pressure because they then have to sell the bikes mm-hmm. and then at the price range and not at discount. Mm-hmm. And then they start to discount them to get rid of the stock before the next year Because the next comes year in. comes in, yeah. So, and, and also like, um, yeah, the assemb- bike assembly is also a very tricky phase because... Mm-hmm. Um, so like a lot of factories will prioritize um, bigger brands because they know that they're the clients that they need to look out for. So smaller brands really suffer. Oh, so now you're so supply. what you're saying is that there's a factory that puts together bikes for various brands. There's uh, factories that produce the bikes and they assemble them as well. So they'll basically do everything in the one place and then they'll package and ship. Yeah. But um, what I mean is like there's a one factory in that factory they're pu- they're putting together and, as- and manufacturing and assembling, you know, BMC bikes and Trek bikes and Merida bikes and whatever else brand bikes. But there's a one factory. <clears throat> so it's not like each brand has a bit. It's very factory. Mm, some. No, I think um, most brands are using the same factories in Taiwan, Mm -hmm. so they'll be sharing and some Mm -hmm. factories specialize in certain things like there's Mm -hmm. one factory that, for example, you would produce a bike like the Time Machine or the the Team Elite because they are really good at lightweight carbon Mm -hmm. layup um, Mm -hmm. and they're specialists in that and they have the Mm -hmm. technology for it. Whereas you might produce the Team Elite O2 in a different Mm -hmm. factory because they'll be better at like, um, you know, carbon layup distribution in different areas of the bike. They wouldn't have the technology to be able to do the really like high level stuff. And then you'll have different factory, different brands using different factories for different bikes depending on what the factory okay. strength is okay. and then sometimes um those bikes uh, there is one particular brand i remember hearing saved 13 million mm-hmm. um euros by um shipping all the bikes from taiwan to um who i can't remember where it was now uh vietnam i think mm-hmm. to have the bikes assembled in vietnam hmm. um which is also interesting because if you think of like the logistics of gathering all the bikes from Taiwan and then moving all the bikes to Vietnam into the jungle <laughs> mm-hmm. where there's cheaper labor, getting them assembled there, taking them back out of that location and then putting them on a boat to be distributed to their different centers. Hmm. Um, it's quite interesting, but um, that's kind of how, how it's working. So I think you already answered that, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyway. So... Is it true or maybe how much is it true statement that sometimes you hear like saying, like, oh, you know, like 
giant does all the so they have a factory so all the bikes are made there so i might as well buy the you know a giant bike because it's all the same giant's an exception yeah oh really yeah so giant actually owns a lot of the factories yeah exactly so you so you confirm that so how how much this is true is it like well Well, it's not giant it's a syndicate i think yeah yeah so is it diff- is it any difference? You might as well buy a giant bike because it's the same factory. No, anyway. because it's up to giant to design the bike. I mean, yeah. the factory only <clears throat> the factory follows instructions based on the product, the design team at the brand. Mm-hmm. And if the design and technology isn't up to scratch, then you get a bike that's not up to scratch or not yeah. as good as another brand. And is bike. the quality process and the production process also kind of imposed by the by the brand? brand? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, it's pretty stringent because um, it has to meet certain standards usually, like that the UCI is one of the standards. Mm-hmm. And then second, um, you know, if stuff breaks, then it's obviously really bad for the brand. You mm-hmm. know, it does happen because, you know, nothing's perfect. And sometimes mm-hmm. there's like a factory defect or maybe there's a something that the product designers overlooked. And mm-hmm. yeah, there has to be recalls. I mean, it's normal after stress testing. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, hopefully. Sure. Generally, it doesn't happen that often. Huh. Yeah. That was, very, that was very interesting. I didn't expect that, to dive that deep into the bike manufacturing. But this is, this I've been is out the... of it for like, I guess, a year and a half or two years now. But um, okay. yeah, it's interesting. I'm involved in another project, um, which is related to increasing the awareness around the environmental impact of the bike industry. Oh, um, that's probably a more interesting topic than what goes on in the bike industry. It's, it's equally interesting, please. It's, it's very kind of like a now a popular uh, subject about environmental impacts and all that. So, so please lay it out for us. Yeah, so um, I guess through the time that I spent working for BMC Switzerland, I made quite a few, obviously, contacts in the industry and, um, you know, with the press and then with just people I became friends with and one of them is a girl is a woman called um, Leanne van Leeuwen she's Dutch and she works in food sustainability but she has been she's an excellent photographer and she writes very nicely and she's she's new enough to cycling but she had this she was really shocked when she started talking to friends of hers in the industry Mm -hmm. about topics related to bikes and where they come from and what the carbon footprint is on shipping bikes all the way from like Asia to Mm. Europe or to the States and how come there isn't a selection of like um, sustainable apparel there for cyclists that might want to buy um, you know, like that's made from recycled plastic, like you have in the uh, surf industry, for example, mm-hmm. or in the in ski and snow sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, it was really bugging her, I think, for about a year. And then she was like, I'm going to do something about this. Mm-hmm. So she gathered together. I think there's there's six of us or five or six of us in this group. Mm-hmm. Um, she asked me to help her with the PR and communication side of it mm-hmm. and to network as well. Um, to come up with um, some like a it's like a platform that we have to connect people within the industry and the community to share ideas and look at ways that we can um, impact and uh, transmit the message that we need to do something Mm -hmm. because currently there's no standard there's no um, there's no solution right because uh, what happens uh, sorry no standard for for what there's no solution for, for the biggest. I think one of the biggest topics is um, most of the bikes that people are purchasing are made of carbon. Mm-hmm. Carbon is non not recyclable. Mm. The carbon that you get in the form of a bike frame because it's been treated with epoxy. 
Um, yeah. In order, carbon essentially is recyclable or can be reused. But the the carbon tubes that have been treated with epoxy first have to strip the epoxy, which is a very time consuming process. And it's actually damaging anyway from a chemical perspective. So we have a lot of situations where there's brands out there stockpiling either warranty bikes or bikes that have been returned to them from dealers because they're mm-hmm. broken or they've reached their sell by date. Yeah. And they're in factories, but there's no solution for wow. um, doing anything with these this carbon. So that's one of the bigger that's one of the bigger topics. And, until and what's happening currently up, with those bikes? They're just in factories. They're in store, store, storage. Like uh, there's one particular brand. I thought in the that, States. that they're you're gonna say they ended up in the landfill and then in the ocean or something. Some of bad the brands. Like that. It's not that bad if they're in factory. I mean. Yeah, there. I mean, landfill is not a solution either because the carbon doesn't regenerate, doesn't uh, decompose. Mm. Um, so yeah, some brands are very, you know, they're like, they do have, um, someone in charge of, uh, sustainability within the companies. And I think that they're, it weighs heavily on their minds, let's say, and mm. they're just waiting for a solution and to see what they can do with I all these bikes. I have a solution. Make <laughs> steel bikes again. That's one of, that's one of the, op- well, that's one of the topics that we have addressed, uh, or we will be addressing. Um, we started these clunker rides, mm-hmm. um, where we, different friends of ours organized rides in in cities in Mm -hmm. Europe and the bike that you were to ride shouldn't be more than five years old um, Mm -hmm. or less than five years old rather yeah so just highlighting the fact that you don't need to always have the shiny bright new stuff that um, you know I guess part of the job of of this group is to to have conversations with people that are producing uh, locally or their local bike builders or they're making components um, from sustainable methods mm-hmm. um, or they're making apparel from have recycled you, Have you goods. heard about the this, this initiative called the Rebike? No. I had it on the podcast. There's a guy who's, this, this is like a social enterprise. Mm-hmm. He's running that in uh, Dungarvan in County Watford, yeah. I think. It's called a Rebike Cafe. And he gathers like old bikes, broken bikes or like, you know, kids grew up and they're just not using this. So all those bikes that were otherwise ended up somewhere in the trash, he gathers all them and he fixes them, you know, repairs and whatever, and then donates to schools, to people in need. It's like I, I have him on the podcast, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, and we walk into his cafe and you see like a like an old, uh, what was it? Was it uh not Tinelli bike, the the bike which is like a mm, classic color, like a blue green. What's the? I I don't remember the brand now. Like very like classic yeah. Italian brand of Bianchi the bike. Bianchi, yeah. Bianchi, Bianchi, and it was like a steel bike, like an old one with the with the shifters on the on the down tube. Yeah, but with a with a carbon wheels and and like like a vintage yeah. it, it, there's a name like a like a new vintage there's a or something ton of amazing social initiatives hmm. um like even i was in morocco a couple of weeks ago and there's a dutch couple bringing bikes from holland and mm-hmm. um not just um distributing them they're focusing a lot on women because women in muslim countries aren't allowed to drive so they think this is a really good way to facilitate them to move around but they're also training mechanics because they're mm. seeing cycling is becoming very popular in morocco in the mm-hmm. mountains and stuff however our our sort of focus is a little bit more on on the industry and the community right so educating the community to say hey guys did you realize that like your investments you're pumping money into this carbon industry and the bikes that you're riding which is mm-hmm. 
are not sustainable or are not yeah. recyclable. So it's not that we want to, you know, imp- like we don't want to like negatively impact the bike industry, but we also just want people to be aware of this topic and also look for maybe just not buy that bike mm. every two years <laughs> maybe try and keep the carbon frame that they have and just replace the components and if they are going to replace the components look to chris king for example who's making who, who's one of his philosophies is to have uh, you know sustainable uh, component production mm-hmm. like make those make those choices so one is being informed about what the the choices are or the, the options that you have are and mm-hmm. um, being more conscientious not replacing that bike every year with a new carbon bike um mm-hmm. and just I suppose, you know, coming together as a collective group and maybe even, you know, trying to f- look for solutions together yeah. because there are a lot of people out there doing things, but we don't know about them because it's they're out on their own. Yeah. So it's more about bringing people together so that we can have that conversation and we can support each other to find yeah, solutions yeah. that yeah. aren't currently yeah, there. Yeah, you, sh- you, should, you should contact this guy in, in mm-hmm. Watford because it's, it seems like a kind of similar. Uh, but you know what? What you're saying, it's, it's like I said, it's a very, very popular subject right now. But I think that the replacing bike every two years has nothing to do with the components of the bike. It's nothing to do with the it's like the bike is morally old you know all the lads have to see my i have a new bike yeah totally it it doesn't like bikes can run like my my friend who again i have him on the podcast he cycled through sahara desert Mm -hmm. uh on the fat bike believe it or not and he and he and he done that because he was going fishing in Sahara Desert from all the places. So he cycled mm-hmm. then there and he has a, like a Marin bike and he said like, my parents gave me that bike when I was 17 or 16. I had a call with the brand manager and of Marin yesterday actually. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, it's a great bike. It's, you know, yeah. he's still, so so that's, uh, that's I, I think that a lot of people see that. Well, I mean, you know, there's different, different people do different things with bikes. Mm. I mean, there are riders that are very into their performance cycling and mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, it's not for me to say that they shouldn't buy a bike every two years, but maybe they can look at ways to offset it. If they're mm-hmm. conscious of what the carbon footprint is of purchasing that bike, maybe they can try and offset it in other ways. But just to mm-hmm. be more conscious, just to even know that like there yeah. is an impact when you buy that bike and to, to be aware of what the environmental impact of, the, of that purchase is because mm-hmm. no one has been talking about it until now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know what? That's, that's interesting because there's a lot of talk about like impact and sustainability in, in very every area almost. Mm-hmm. And I think like the problem is that because we have so many people who are buying this stuff, right? It was like, it was is like... I am not sure, like, is this the solution? And I'm like, I don't have better solution. But yeah, I, but consumerism. I, but I think com- consumer, yeah. like, the, this is this is the, and this is a good thing because we we live better. We can afford that our, our you know life. We've never had life. it better. Exactly, we never had it better. We never had it better. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I, I I don't know because it seems like the initiative, like you're saying, it's it's. You know, I, I applaud it, but it's mm-hmm. it feels like a drop in the ocean. Do you think do you think it's like years and years and years of work like that before we see the impact? Or or you think like no, it's actually not, you know, next decade. It's like It has to start years. somewhere. Hmm. And but do you do you have this like overwhelming like like a vision of dealing with something so overwhelmingly big that sometimes you go like, Oh, this just doesn't make sense. 
It's not a it's not a reason not to do it. Um, mm. It's not a big enough reason not to do it. Um, I think that with the group in working on the projects, mm-hmm. we've enough influence that the message will get to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the events that we're doing, we're going to be doing these like cleanups on some of the big alpine passes in oh. in Europe this summer. Together with the clunkers rides, we're doing some gear I like, swaps. I like the clunker ride. I yeah, like we're doing some yeah. gear swaps as well. It, that's mm-hmm. they're the community events, and we're interviewing um, bike manufacturers or component manufacturers or apparel people to that are you know are conscious of this topic um, to see how they do it. And it's not our job to change the world; it's mm-hmm. our job to make people aware. Or we feel it's our yeah. job to help to make people aware. That there is this problem. That's a good. That's a good start. Yeah. And then it doesn't seem like an unachievable goal. It seems like a quite, quite attainable. Yeah, I mean, it's only we've only been sort of working on this since about, I guess, a year. It's only really mm-hmm. gathered a bit of momentum in the last four mm-hmm. months since Leanne had more time to work on it. Um, hmm. But like typically, I would love personally. I would love. I don't know if Leanne is together with me on this, but I would love to see, in the same way, you have like a standard um, on the 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 quality of bikes like quality control of mm-hmm. bikes for, mm-hmm. like from the UCI or yeah. um I'd love to see um something similar for uh, either f- like similar to fair trade mm-hmm. or or sustainability or, or environmentally friendly or yes that sticker that says you're buying a product that has one the workers that have been producing this product have been treated fairly mm-hmm. and two the bike has been made somehow a carbon footprint neutral mm-hmm. um at the moment um compared to other industries the bike industry is very far behind really? i'll probably never get a job in the bike industry again after this <laughs> podcast but um yeah they they know it like but it's just not easy it, and it's not the weight isn't on the bike industry's shoulders it's just really really difficult to come up with um a, a commercial solution for this yeah. because you know that that's what that's how it's working at the moment i don't expect trek to say we're not going to produce any more carbon bikes we're going to just make steel bikes i mean mm-hmm. that's just not going to happen mm-hmm. so it's a matter of supporting the industry to look for solutions by connecting them with people and experts um and just seeing what's possible you know yeah. Yeah. it's surprising because like bikes are usually seen as a kind of eco-friendly and environmentally friendly cycling way. is C- yes yes cycling yeah. but, the, but the bikes are kind of like a part of that and here you are say so like no 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 that industry is far behind <laughs> yeah it is but i'm and not I talking somebody, about somebody's listening to that podcast and goes like oh no no, no, no. <laughs> just let's just keep them separate because obviously mm-hmm. the bike as a method of transport is mm-hmm. is highly sustainable i mean the bike has been probably the best invention of mankind it's it's given freedom to so many people to move mm-hmm. around without needing to use mm-hmm. um fuel mm-hmm. um a bike can last forever if you take mm-hmm. care of it it's such a simple machine bike can change a life yeah totally i mean like let's not stop cycling but let's mm-hmm. look at what we're using to cycle yeah. um, and see is there a way that we can yeah, you're improve. right that's, that's, that's important come on guys yeah. we, cycling is okay cycling is amazing <laughs> cycling is okay just what you're saying just a I cl- wasn't, clunker ride I'm not sure if I would agree with you if I would have agreed with that on Monday evening because I had a ride out with the mm-hmm. social leisure group from the uh-huh. from the Killarney Cycling Club uh-huh. um, who are amazing by the way <laughs> I'm uh-huh. going to give them a bit of a plug here on Please. on the podcast yeah there's a group of very passionate riders that 
get together um, mostly Mondays, maybe Wednesdays or Thursdays and every weekend. And on, on the weeknights, they ride from Killarney Town up to the top of Miles Gap, mm-hmm. beyond Miles Gap, actually, and then back down again uh-huh. um, in the dark. Wow. And um, on uh, Monday night last, I was like, grand, I'm going to turn up. And my, my road bike, um, I didn't get to, I needed to change a brake cable. So I mm-hmm. took my gravel bike, which mm-hmm. has got 42 millimeter tires in mm-hmm. it. But I was like, oh, it'll be fine. Um, the average speed up and down was 26 kilometers an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and that's 810 meters of, of elevation gain. Yeah, so yeah. it was pretty quick. <laughs> what's, the, what's the name of that group again? It's just Killarney Cycling Club. Oh, it's Killarney Cycling Club. Yeah. But there's a couple of um, sort of fractions within the club. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got like the obviously the more competitive riders mm-hmm. that are sort of doing their own mm-hmm. thing, performance related. Yeah. And then you've got yeah. the mountain bikers who are also really, really amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. the work that they've been doing to, you know, maintain trails and to bring the youth on. And mm-hmm. it's a fantastic. Club, that's, a, yeah. that's a part of mountain biking, right? To, to, to maintain trail the trail, break, build trails yeah. and build all that. Are there any good trails in, in Killarney, like in the, in the, in the area? Um, uh, the second topic that I'm very passionate about, I suppose. Oh, very good. Please. <laughs> I was like rolling my eyes. Um, Because yeah, I, I'm, trail I tell, access. I, 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 tell <laughs> you, I tell you I tell you what, I this is this is how I got in the, into the road cycling because I was, uh, like, you know, I started as a mountain biker and I was mountain, cycling on the mountain bike. Yeah. But then... At the time, the only solution for me was to put the bike on the back of my car and drive to Balihura yeah. and, and cycle there. And then I had a surgery in a knee and then the doctor said like, well, cycling is a great way of, you know, kind of rehabbing. And so like, okay, I have my mountain bike. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to put like a, you know, like a, a, a tires, like a road tires on it yeah. and cycle. And then I said like, well, actually, I might as well buy a road bike and because it's so much more accessible Uh, you can just, leave from home. You can yeah. leave from home and come back rather than you know. So obviously there are there are folks who live somewhere close to the trail or close to the you know nice area mm-hmm. when they have this sort of access on the mountain bike. But in general, that can be an issue. So so yeah. please tell. tell. <laughs> it's a tough one in Ireland because um, oh I guess it's it's me as well. I mean I lived I had the I was fortunate to live in Switzerland for eight years. Mm-hmm. And I, no matter where I lived, I had trails on my doorstep. Ah. And it's one of the things I absolutely miss the most about living in Ireland. I think my mountain bike has suffered mm. <laughs> since I moved home. Um, one, because to get to um, like good quality trails. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking about good quality trails, um, they're not always natural trails. So mm-hmm. you need a community of riders that are building the trails, maintaining them and, you know, creating new trails. And I have to put the bike into the car and drive to Killarney because luckily enough there we've got some amazing individuals um, that are, you know, constantly working on the trails around Torque, which are for me some of the best trails in the country. Mm. Um, and then apart from that, outside of Kerry, um, you've, put, you've got to go to Ballyhara or um, Bike Park Ireland up in, I think it's Tipperary. Mm-hmm. Um Or then go up to Dublin and on Dublin, then you've got like Ballinstow and Jouse and a whole bunch of really, mm-hmm. really great like areas to ride your bike there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest topics, one of the bigger topics here is um, trail access. Mm-hmm. Um, officially in Kerry, correct me if I'm wrong, or actually if someone could comment on this podcast and clarify, I'd be very appreciative. Um, 
there are no official mountain biking trails. Mm. Um, there are riders riding on on trails um, with the permission of the landowner, um, like just actually approaching the farmer and saying, hey, do you mind if I ride across your property today? Mm-hmm. And the farmer says yes or no or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and then some landowners, they don't mind because the riders are walking on what are like official walking trails. Mm-hmm. But those walking trails um, are often prohibiting um, mountain bikers and horse riders and even people walking with dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Mm-hmm. We are pretty limited in Kerry. It's really unfortunate. And sometimes I really feel like the sort of the recreational users or the the wishes of all recreational users is not being taken into account. Um, Mm -hmm. Definitely walkers are being prioritized. Um, You know, I guess people think that walkers have lower impact on trails than mountain bikers or for some reason. It's more accessible. You don't have to spend 4,000 euro on a mountain bike. (laughs) Yeah, there's probably more walkers out there. But in terms of like trail erosion Mm. and and those topics, I, Mm -hmm. you know, there's been studies done which show that mountain bikers versus walkers, there's often not a huge difference when it comes to trail erosion, unless you're dealing with like alpine trails where there's a, you know, gravity is is being taken into account. But if you have... Given the amount of people that are riding mountain bikes in Kerry versus the ones that are people that are walking, mm-hmm. it's probably never going to be more than 15 percent yeah. bikers. You know, even if the sport explodes within the next five to 10 years, mm-hmm. you'll probably have maybe still like a 70 to 30 uh, percent ratio, 70 percent being walkers, 30 percent being bikers. So I don't yeah. see the trail erosion topic being a very valid one. It's just a matter of... Um, Mountain bikers getting together and as a group and, you know, lobbying a little bit for that's always a, that's always a problem. You know, I, I think especially in the in the outdoor space when you're because that's a, that's a something that is that's that's quite repeatable. You know, if you take the anglers and you take a hunters mm-hmm. and you take a, a mountain bikers, like if only these people got together. Yeah. And try to, like you said, lobby for something. They will be so much more powerful. But, uh, but the problem is like they're like either don't know or they don't care or they kind I of like I think it has spread. to get to a point where they feel like, you know, the situation is bad enough that they, they have to do something about it. Now, there yeah. are there are some groups in Ireland. Um, I think that the mountain bikers in Wicklow have mm. been very successful in creating sort of um, a situation where... There is, I suppose, both like landowners are content and they're they're tol they're tolerable they're tolerating the mountain mm-hmm. bikers on their land, or it's or it's Quilta owned forest. Yeah, I was I was I was gonna ask that because have you heard about this organization that is called Keep Ireland Open? Yeah, I have yeah, and 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 I think this is this is kind of the same subject, right? Because you said like oh, it's either farmer, but then. There is seldom farmer has a farm big enough so you can have a trail within one farm. So then you need number of farmers yeah. and then you have a quilt a forest and it's it's just mess. I think it's very very difficult to to have a to identify the patch of land that is big enough so you can build a trail and everybody agrees or you'd not end up in a situation where there's like a one guy who's in the middle of the whole thing is like no close. 
you can't say and yeah, the whole trail is it's funny because in Ireland people say oh you should look at what's been done in New Zealand oh you should look at what's been done in Scotland or I would say oh my god like Switzerland's amazing because you mm-hmm. have walkers and cyclists sharing trails and mm-hmm. stuff they're the wrong examples because like you just mentioned there's been massive areas of land donate like state owned land where the state has said this is how we want the, want this land to be run. We want to have like uh, the freedom to roam like in Scotland or mm-hmm. we want to have all of our Vanderweg like trails, mm-hmm. which is like wander way, I suppose, in English. Um, we want to allow walkers and cyclists um, unanimously share the trail and the same in New Zealand. But Ireland's not like that. And historically, mm-hmm. I mean, people in Ireland, they want to own land. It's, you know, we've only had our land back for the last like whatever, 100 years. Mm-hmm. So people are so protective of their land and the insurance and third party liability complications don't really help either where mm-hmm. you know people if they get injured on the land then they can hold the landowner liable or whatever um, what we should look to more is like um, England and there have been very successful groups in England lobbying for access to to trails like um, uh, Open Mountain Bike I think it's called mm-hmm. uh, UK it's mm-hmm. mostly guys from Sheffield mm-hmm. and they've been lobbying um a lot in Wales, um, but also in England for access on like bridleways and um, paths that have been previously just um, accessible to walkers, but they're now accessible to mountain bikers. Um, so I think we should look at more models that are similar to ours um, mm-hmm. in terms of the situation with land ownership and not like aim for the, the, the you know, yeah. the, the pedestal, which is like Scotland or Switzerland mm-hmm. or or New Zealand. So maybe being a bit more realistic and saying, look, England is a country that is more similar to Ireland in terms of land ownership. Let's have a look and see what they were doing and what groups have been successful over there and how do they do it? And how have they found, how have they come to the point where a lot of recreational users feel like their rights are being uh, addressed or respected Mm -hmm. when it comes to the usage of trails? It's, you know, um, when I'm recording those podcasts, you know, it's, it's very interesting because i see kind of common things related to outdoors and like land access and land management in general mm-hmm. you know it's it's a foundation of of a lot of outdoors activities um i had a podcast as well on the podcast the, the guy who is uh, his job title was recreational officer in Brian Brian Fennell, I think is his name, in in uh, in Wicklow, mm-hmm. and they're doing they're, they're, his job is exactly kind of mediating between the landowners and make sure there is a one trail and people can do and can you know recreate on the in the outdoors because and, and I'm thinking like change in the way the land is managed is really absolutely like under foundation of everything else. You once, need people once. like this. I mean, in Scotland, um, I attended the Developing Mountain Biking in Scotland conference in October, mm-hmm. which was absolutely mind blowing how they mm-hmm. are set up to to develop trails and to and how they work with the landowners. So these types of recreational officers, they have them. I think they have five in Scotland mm-hmm. that are working with just for mountain biking mm-hmm. and it's <laughs> government funded. So it's a Scottish Cycling Association. 
Um, but the Scots are like fanatics about mountain biking and, you know, the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And they're really, really investing in this. And they see the value in having roles like this, where you have mm-hmm. someone that's representing the needs of the mountain biker, but also mm-hmm. knows what the story is with the landowner. Yes. And they act as an intermediary. Um, we feel, I think, if I if we had any mountain bikers here, I think we as a whole would feel wholly unrepresented mm-hmm. in when it comes to like, you know this topic in Ireland yes. um, yeah like yeah. I just really hope that <laughs> you know there's a lot of people always talk about funding and there's money going into this and there's money going into that I'd love to see money going into like those types of roles that are you know people that are, are in between that know mm-hmm. both sides of the coin and that can yeah. really help especially in Kerry which is like people call it like the adventure capital of Ireland it's absolutely embarrassing <laughs> that we don't have official mountain biking trails mm-hmm. yes so i agree yeah i, I agree 100 <laughs> percent. but you know what you what you said earlier uh lobbying i mean at the mm. at the level of you know political level that's important as well because i i think that the the, the folks who are just organized locally within you know groups and farmers is like can only go you know so far but there can also be a little switch in in approach as well i mean if I were to be probably more t- way too radical for a lot of mm-hmm. people living in Kerry and mm-hmm. working in agriculture. I mean, if you look to other countries, they're looking at ways to earn money through allowing access to their land by um, what is mm-hmm. it, agro- agro-tourism, mm-hmm. um, opening up little cafes or even like the, the age old Germanic um, thing of selling eggs, jam and like suismost, mm-hmm. which is like apple juice mm-hmm. on as people pass through or close to their farmland. So, mm-hmm. for example, on the new Glen Bay to Carsevine Greenway, I mean, there's opportunities there for so many small landowners to mm-hmm. turn things around now and to like offer accommodation to people that will be cycling on this path between Glen Bay and Carsevine. I mean, people should look at these developments as an opportunity rather than um impeding in their way to make money in the old sense of 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 economy which was you know farming farming Mm -hmm. yes of course we need farming i mean ireland is one of the most food sustainable Mm -hmm. countries i think in europe or in the world let's keep uh, keep Mm -hmm. keep up with that but i don't think Kerry has ever been or at least south Kerry is not never going to be a super arable patch of land because of all the mountains and everything so let's look at a way to capitalize on these developments absolutely and you know when 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 i talk to farmers they they always say like oh you know it's it's hard to live from the farm it's impossible you know it's like a one job and you need to have another Mm -hmm. job just to like and what you know, in my view, is like, w- are you taking all the opportunities? And what you're saying is exactly the answer is no, because there is so many other opportunities than change. just run sheep or, or, you know, you just run sheep, you, you run cattle there and like what else? And may, maybe you're going to plant it. Another interesting podcast was the about all the schemes to plant the native woodlands mm-hmm. on them, because this is this is exactly, you know, there are there are parts of the. Uh, land people own the land they're you know it's not not sustained not suitable for grazing Mm -hmm. and they have that land and like what am i going to do with that well go and plant the you know native woodlands and so on and so on so i think going to farmers and talking and just making them aware like hey are you aware that you can actually make money off your land because there's a lot of farmers like again 
not long ago I was talking with my friend who said like there's a farmer he's like uh, you know 65 mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't have children and those children are not interested in farming and over his his you know life he purchased many patches of the land and he has all this land and he's like a 60 65 year old guy alone with all that what is he gonna do with this mm-hmm. right nothing and like I bet you he doesn't know any of that Right, and this is the the opportunity is to go to these people and say, hey, do you know, like, if we think your land and build a trail and something. Yeah, definitely. I think there's there's one there's maybe a lack of maybe people just haven't seen outside of Ireland and the 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 op, well the options. I suppose mm-hmm. you need you need to be inspired a little bit and you need to see new things and be like, oh my god, we could do that at home, yeah. kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, it's also it's also really difficult for it's it's fear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, my God, can you imagine it? Like, that's what, you know, you know, farming. And mm-hmm. now you're going to try something completely different where mm-hmm. you're going to let people into your mm-hmm. your lovely home, which is not easy for Irish people. Like, yeah, you know, so, yeah, like it's it's I just hope that like maybe slowly in the next 10, 20 years mm-hmm. that people begin to recognize these opportunities mm-hmm. and. I don't know how it's going to happen. But. So if someone like a mountain biker is now listening to that <laughs> podcast, it's like, yeah, I want to get involved. I want to do something about it. What would you recommend? What what he or she should do? I don't know if there's any. Um, there has been talks about a group forming in Kerry that will be um, looking to come together like representatives of different not representatives of clubs but individuals that are passionate about this topic mm-hmm. so um i guess you can get in touch with me and maybe i can connect you with the people that are going right. to be involved in this group um i don't know if it's formed yet but i was mm-hmm. approached about it um hopefully um, it will if it's not hopefully it will yeah no i'm because sure it's, well, it's, it's, it's important i mean that's, there's it's, a there's it's, a whole bunch important. of people in Kerry that are that are that have been talking about this since i came back a year and a half ago so mm-hmm. I think within the next like few months there will be a meeting and if there's someone listening to this that's keen to get involved then just uh, get in touch with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you can write to me at fiola at commute.com F-I-O-L-A at K-O-M-O-O-T dot com um, and then I can hook you up with the people yeah. that are involved. Listen, that's but but we never finished like we started that podcast with like your love, your job. <laughs> and when we then we kind of like meandered and just like so. Yeah. So you're... You were working with BMC. Yeah. That, was that already your kind of very good job or you still were were on the mission to get that what you wanted? Oh, wow. It's a good question. No, I, I never thought. <laughs> I guess my boss is going to think that I'm being paid to say this, but I, I don't think I could have ever imagined being so happy in a in a job or in a company as I am at the moment. Um, <clears throat> so what's the company? I work for Kamut. Kamut. Yeah. yeah um, so Kamut's our route planning and navigation app. Um, we're not very well known in Ireland. Um, partly my fault. <laughs> but you're working on it, right? You're working not on it. particularly pushing in <laughs> Ireland, no. <laughs> That's more of a strategic decision. I mean, Ireland, oh, okay. Ireland, if Ireland was full of mountains and forests and a lot of people mm. were really into hiking and mountain biking and road cycling, then... Maybe it would be a topic, but Kamut's really for explorers, I suppose. It's um, it's the best um, route planning app 
that's mm-hmm. out there. Um, it's available on um, iOS and Android, but also on the your computer desktop. Mm-hmm. And when I say we're not focusing on Ireland um, for a number of reasons, I mean, I don't want to get into them on the podcast, but mm-hmm. um, we're big in, in Germany, Austria and Switzerland. We've mm-hmm. got about 8 million users now in total um, mm-hmm. and we're growing pretty quickly in the UK and now we'll be translating to Spanish and French and right. Italian. So we're basically growing at a very so how is it? So how this is like a dream job in the outdoors? Because it seems like a, just another company that is developing their platform. Um, because it's in the outdoors. So I guess for me, in terms of me as a person, I've got like a huge amount of freedom mm-hmm. um, in the role that I have. I'm, I'm managing the international PR. Mm-hmm. Um And of course, I get to like work a lot with the cycling media. So I get Mm -hmm. to maintain all of the (laughs) contacts from my old job. Um, But I also get to travel quite a bit. And Mm. a lot of the trips involve riding my bike, which is something I love to do as well. (laughs) Fantastic. So like last year. Are you guys hiring by any chance? (laughs) We are actually hiring. (laughs) Yeah. But not Mm. everyone has the cool job that I have. I must Uh, say. Okay. 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 So So there are also sucky jobs in the company. (laughs) No, because like, I guess, you know, like an Android developer doesn't need to be able to ride a bike or Mm -hmm. doesn't need to be able to like you know talk mm-hmm. with the press and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um that's kind of what i get to do although this year i'll be doing probably a lot less traveling hopefully mm-hmm. a lot less traveling than last year because it was a bit manic last year mm. but um yeah I, I basically the difference between i suppose that the good thing for me about the role that i'm in now is it, i'm moving away from performance cycling mm-hmm. um which suits me because for a long time for a long period of my life I was very performance orientated mm-hmm. I was you know an elite athlete in rowing and then I started I, I did adventure racing and I was competing with the Irish team and then I was doing super hard like mountain triathlons like mm-hmm. the Inferno and the mm-hmm. Alpinathlon and and then I, I raced um licensed like elite road mountain bike and track mm-hmm. so I was cool. really like you know pushing pretty hard until I was about 30 I suppose, four or five. Um, And then work, my career started to, my work started to get really busy and then I started to pull back from Mm -hmm. performance sports, but then focus a bit more on my my job. And was it not your dream job? Like, it seems like, I I know that there's a lot of people who are listening to that is like, gee, this is the dream job, like a performance athlete doing these crazy races and all that. I, uh, I've never been a fan of professional sports. How? Even when I was racing, really? I love to race because, and it's a funny thing because people are like, you're so competitive. I love to push myself. I don't really care. I mean, it, it's nice that I was good at what I did and I was in the top five or winning medals, but I never really had this thing where I, I'm going to beat you. I was always mm-hmm. like, I'm going to get the best out of myself. Mm-hmm. And so I was never gaga about mm-hmm. like pro cyclists or mm. whatever, because I've been there. Right. So... I know what goes on. I respect them like crazy because I know what the sacrifices are like. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really selfish mm. um, because if you're a pro athlete or an elite athlete, you put a lot of things to one side in your life to be able to pursue mm-hmm. and reach that pinnacle of your sport. Um, and I had this like interesting sort of phase in my life where I was like, I really don't know if this is me being the best person that I can be because mm. I was never really a lot of times I wasn't there for other people because I was so focused on me and my performance and my sports. So 
yes, I loved working in the sort of, you know, race scene a little bit. It was really cool to go to all the races, but I really yeah. didn't care. Like I'd rather have been out like climbing up mountains than I would have been at the sidelines cheering people on. Mm-hmm. So the transition to work for Kamut has been amazing because I naturally mm. love to explore on my bike, like, or on foot. So I love to go up into the reeks and Mm -hmm. try different routes or run up mountains. I I really enjoy hill running as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I love to try new places um, for, you know, just exploring on my bike. And even the other day, I was driving out to Rathmore to get the, um, my van, put it through that roadworthiness test. And I saw like a turn off to this lake called Shrone Lake. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I've never been up there. I've never been up around like the Paps or like (laughs) explored on my mountain bike up around Glenflesk. And then I took out Kamut when I was waiting for my car to go through the tests. Mm -hmm. And I did a little, made a little plot of a route Mm -hmm. up there on the mountain bike or it could be done on the gravel bike as Mm -hmm. well, I suppose. And I was like, right, that's where I know I'm going to have to get myself out to there now at the weekend. I'm going to head out there on Saturday or Sunday. And just Sunday, Saturday will be awful. Well, it's Sunday. So and I'm just going <laughs> to I love that. I love going to places mm-hmm. that I, I don't know what to expect apart from what Kamut tells me, which is mm-hmm. pretty handy. So I know how much mm-hmm. gravel there will be and how much single track. Mm-hmm. And then I can just follow the route um, on my app or my Garmin or my Wahoo or right. whatever. And that's what I love to do. Well, before we go to Kamut, so, so you are you are ex-professional athlete. Yeah. Are you are you missing are you missing the the adrenaline the rush the, the everything that goes into that? Um, I reflected on this like literally two days ago when I came across like an old racing picture of myself. Um, it's it it definitely took some effort on my side to to accept to move away from it to accept mm. that it is okay not to like beast myself four Mm. or five times a week um, to accept (laughs) the fact that your body changes um, Mm -hmm. or I I miss I miss the intensity sometimes I miss maybe being at the the top the top condition you know but there's a time and a place for everything Mm -hmm. and I think if you're really fixated on that it's not sustainable you can't be like that all your life I'm going to be 40 in May I think it's a pretty good time to like I love the fact that I don't have any pressure to perform. I mean, the hmm. biggest pressure I have is keeping up with my my friends this summer when I go. I'm going to be living on the west coast of France for a while, mm-hmm. probably be riding a lot in the Pyrenees. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be riding out with some friends of mine who are in pretty good shape. And I'd say the most the most effort I'll be putting in in my cycling over the next few months is just being able to keep up with them when we ride together. But I don't care anymore about QOMs. I mean, I've been there, done that. Like I did the whole Strava buzz. I had like the QOMs in quite a lot of the Swiss Alps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're you're done with it. No, I I enjoy surfing now. It was one of the big reasons I came back to Kerry. It's lovely to have the flexibility to just say, to look at the forecast Mm -hmm. and just go, right, uh, waves are looking good on Wednesday. I'm going to wrap up work Mm -hmm. early at three o'clock and drive back to Inchreeks or to Brandon Bay or Waterville. I I think this again, like I I said many times that, you know, the opportunities for the outdoors in in Ireland and Kerry is is amazing. Yeah, it's it's it is like but uh, I remember like when I when I came back and I was surfing, one of the things I well, Ireland's amazing for surfing, especially Kerry. It's very fickle. Like you have to be on it when there's surf, but there's never anyone in the water. I mean, the most crowded <laughs> inch has been was on a super big day. It was really nice and beautiful and clean. Mm-hmm. And there were like 11 people and the wave can take that. Mm-hmm. But I was out last Thursday evening and it was 
absolutely like top conditions and there were five of us <laughs> waves for everyone um like having just come back from Morocco where there were when the tide was out in that particular spot that I was surfing at for about a week there could be 70 people in the water yeah Oh, I, I heard stories uh, from surfers they serving in Hawaii where, you know, everybody's looking at mm -hmm. each other. It's like, my wave. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not healthy. That's not. <laughs> it was like we were watching like the we were watching it from the balcony in um, in Morocco. I mean, yeah. my neighbors in the hotel that I was staying in. And um, it was like a circus because people were dropping in on each other left, right and center. <laughs> and. It, the vibe was pretty chill so there was no like major mm -hmm. fights or anything mm -hmm. but it was pure mayhem like whereas wow. here like you know I have friends that come surfing in Ireland and they're like mm. this is the real deal like this is what surfing was like 30 years ago where like you go out and you, you paddle out into the into the break and like people are like hey how's it going mm. like and They were taking turns like so I have like these friends from the Basque country that were um, surfing up in Sligo. They're pretty good surfers, mm -hmm. big wave surfers. And um, they were like, oh, my God, like this is amazing. This is like heaven on earth for for surfers, because as the sport has grown so popular, the spots are super crowded. Mm. So Ireland is like Ireland's like a Mecca, except for the problem that it gets a bit cold <laughs> well i was gonna i was gonna say that there's the one one small drawback you yeah. don't you not get it'll hot never and be very like... crowded <laughs> that's yeah. it so really this like idea go go do your favorite sport in the sucky place it's not gonna be crowded <laughs> totally if you can put up with the cold um and the like the freezing spray in your face mm -hmm. in ireland um but it's actually not that cold once you get into the water right once i've never been cold i've got a six mm. millimeter wetsuit and mm -hmm. and i know people laugh at me and they're like six millimeters you know like you know whatever but like <laughs> you know it's 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 just super cool to sit out on the board and like at sunset yeah. an inch can you imagine it you're looking down at the Uver peninsula and you've got this cliff behind you and It's like, or even Brandon. I mean, these spots I are totally, magic. Listen, I totally get it because I, f I feel like it, nothing is like for me, nothing is ruining like a good outdoors experience, whether it's, you know, cycling or fishing or whatever, what have you. When you go there and there's like a crowd of people. Yeah. And, and you know, I often go outdoors just to get away. Mm -hmm. kind of relax and be with the nature and now you're going into the you know there's the other people and these guys you know doing something and these guys are, have music on it's like oh thanks it becomes competitive like which is one of the things mm. i kind of don't well no it's okay i do like to write <laughs> i was gonna quick. i was gonna I was say like, that like, but you stop. <laughs> <laughs> i still like to write fast okay <laughs> Uh, yeah. Listen. So, so before we wrap up, uh, mm -hmm. can you can you say a few more words about Kamut? Um, I look it up, and so this is essentially to, the main focus is to plan to plan routes. So that's it. So that's what distinguish a Kamut from Strava. That's what distinguish yeah. it from Garmin Connect. Like yeah. Garmin Connect is kind of like everything. They try. They try like everything. So yeah, like Kamut is a route planning and navigation app. You can download mm. it from iTunes or the Google mm. Play store. Um, you can plot routes and get really detailed information about what to expect on on route mm. from like uh, way surface type, uh, like the road surface type or the trail surface type. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool for mountain bikers. Um, and it just tells you how long it will take you to ride that route. 
Uh, depending mm. on your fitness level um and, and do you have a, like a map like a like a like a uh, publicly available or is it like a specific property it's all property? it's all based on open street map okay yeah so and there's information about the surface and all that and yeah oh now the qual the the amount of accurate information will depend on how accurate the data is in open street map but mm. it's quite interesting the the community in ireland is quite active um on open street map the open street mm. map community so they're constantly updating or providing okay. osm with information the routing is it's a, it's good in Ireland. It's not it's not fantastic like I think it is in maybe Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and the UK mm-hmm. as well. It's a bit better, um, but we're getting there, and it's just super useful for people that are like ride leaders. So if you're with a club mm. in Ireland and you want to organize a ride, you can plot the ride and commit. You share the link with your with your club riders or with your friends. They all have it, and then you can sync it straight to your Garmin or to your Wahoo mm-hmm. or whatever device you're mm-hmm. using. Um, and on top of that, what's, what makes us really different is um, is the community sharing information with each other. So as mm. a user, when you finish your ride, you'll be prompted to create like a highlight, which is uh, taking a picture from you, one yeah. that you might have taken on your ride yeah. and then creating a little pin on the map with information about mm-hmm. that particular place you were at. So it could be a cafe or it could be a beautiful viewpoint or it could mm. be the top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And you can then write about this. And then other people, when they go to plan in that area, mm-hmm. they'll see your little highlight. Mm-hmm. They'll see all these red dots and they can click on those and get information about the area that they're going to be plotting a route in mm-hmm. so that they're, they can do that more accurately. And is there also like, you know, that the road was flooded or there's an accident, like kind of more... Uh, Kind of type of so the highlights are like warn, permanent warn people what what yeah so uh, but I'm, but you I'm, could say for a trail for example we see it a lot in in Europe like um by the way this trail is going to be closed from like October until oh, okay. March because of snowfall or like a flood probably wouldn't be that relevant um because it would have to be like more of a permanent um mm-hmm. piece of information but for example. Um, please ask the farmer for permission yeah. before crossing, before going on this trail, just to sure. be polite or sure. be aware that dogs aren't allowed on this trail. Or, uh, for example, uh, sometimes there could be fallen trees across the trail. Mm-hmm. So just keep an eye and out is it and is it is it is it limited to trails and roads, or is it like also when you're going like in the, into the wilder wilderness and just. Yeah, because we have off-grid routing as well. Okay. So you don't have to even have like a pre-existing sort of data of, of trail or road network. Mm. You can basically draw a line from A to B if you know that like you want to go across that bog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, this is a story I probably already told on the, on the podcast when I was trying to go up the, the mountains like here, Sleepy Mish Mountains. Yeah. And I downloaded on, on my Garmin, I downloaded the trail from the website is uh, hill walking or mount, mountain or view or yeah. something mountain like that. View, yeah. That's nice. There's a lot of people uploading their trails and so I upload the trails. Oh, great. Right. And I'm going like on the, on the trail and then it kind of goes up and I'm like, okay, where's the trail? <laughs> oh, and, no, and, yeah. and it took me like a while, like going back and forth. I'm missing something like, no, you're not missing something. There's no trail. It's just your waypoints are like there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you gotta go. I was like, okay. <laughs> I used Kamut on, I did the Carantool Hill Run mm-hmm. um, last summer mm-hmm. and it was hilarious. We were coming off the ridge and like when you're running downhill, you're obviously like bombing it. Like you're going as fast as you can. 
and there was a couple of guys in front of me and I was like, right, I'll just follow them, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, they went the wrong direction and we ended up coming across a wall <laughs> and it was misty. It was really misty. Oh. Um, I didn't know that ascent and descent like super well. I mean, I'd normally go up. I mean, I've been up at walking, but when you're in race mode, you're like, OK, mm-hmm. just follow the lead yeah. or whatever. And hey, we're going downhill anyway, so, you know, it's going to be good. Not. <laughs> and then um, and then we realized, oh, man, we're after going off course. And at the time I, w- I could still see the leader. I was in second place. Mm-hmm. And I'd won that race the last time I did it. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, this is bad. Like, I'm definitely not going to win now because, like, she's gone. Mm-hmm. Can't see her anymore. And then I was like, but where's third place? I just can't lose third place. So mm-hmm. I remember really quickly. Competitive aspect, huh? <laughs> yeah, totally non-competitive, of course. Um, well, I was in second place. I just didn't want to lose it. And then I, I realized that I plotted the route already on Komoot. Mm-hmm. And I had my phone in my bag because you were required to carry your phone. Mm-hmm. So I whipped out the phone and I... As I was running, I pulled up the route and I pressed navigate because I knew Kamut would route me back on track. Mm-hmm. And by that time, the five guys that I was running with, mm-hmm. they could hear the turn by turn voice navigation as well, which is saying the trail is 50 meters to your left. <laughs> and so we were all running together going down the hill and the guys were like, what's that voice? Like, where are you getting this from? And I was like, that's Kamut <laughs> in my pocket. <laughs> they came up to me afterwards and they bought me a few drinks as well. Uh-huh. I was like... <laughs> It was actually uh, really, it was really good, like, to just have that, just, just actually in, in that type of situation to be able to press, like, mm-hmm. navigate or record on the phone. And mm-hmm. then it was rooting me back onto the trail that I yeah, had lost. Yeah. Other than that, we would have been like, yeah, it would, we probably would have lost another five minutes mm-hmm. looking for the trail. <laughs> and and so it also allows you to analyze your, your, your track and see where you're going and kind of plan the, 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 the trip that you're. Yeah, like, and this is global, I presume. It's not only these yeah, couple of countries. You you can you can think about Australia the, or United States. Yeah, whatever. it's global. It's global. You can navigate offline as well. So mm-hmm. you're basically turning your phone into GPS device. Mm-hmm. You can um, you plot your route. It's there on mm-hmm. your profile. What do you do on your desktop, on your mm-hmm. computer, or in the app itself? Mm-hmm. Click save, and then when you're ready to go, press record, and then mm-hmm. um, with turn by turn voice navigation, like you would have on a Tom Tom or on a Garmin in a car. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow the trail that you plotted. Mm-hmm. And do you, yeah. do you do you think you guys gonna get into the like hardware side of it? Because no. it it seems like I I know like there what is you said with Garmin who are like maybe trying to do too many things. We're specialists in the root stuff. Yeah, but what I'm thinking yeah. is like I I know that you you have an app in in uh, IQ Connect IQ store, so you can you can have Kamut on on your Garmin device. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm I'm saying about that is like when you out. In the wilderness, your phone is not exactly the greatest type of hardware to have that software. So I'm thinking about, you know, device like this, this Garmin Montana or, or type of outdoorsy big screen things. And then it seems like it will be just a killer to have a app like Kamut on the kind of outdoorsy rugged device rather than on the phone. So what we have a lot is athletes that are undertaking massive like expeditions on bikes mm-hmm. normally going across like Kyrgyzstan or Mongolia mm-hmm. or doing around the world like record breaking attempts mm-hmm. they tend to use their phone as a backup um, mm-hmm. and but they would use a, another device with um, enough memory mm-hmm. um, to store all the data on the device yeah. and then um, battery backups mm-hmm. um, if you're going out into the wilderness and you don't have 3G and um, this is why we still 
offer you the offline solution. Oh, I think it's a no-brainer. So you can put your phone into airplane mode and mm-hmm. you still have GPS coverage generally, mm-hmm. no matter where you are, unless you're in the Arctic Circle. I think, I think that, that the great friend of our podcast, Thomas McIntyre, who is cycling through the Africa, is using Komoot as well. Oh, McIntyre, he's using Komoot. Yeah, yeah, I gave him a voucher. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's one of the people who 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 uh, requested you being on the podcast. I Maybe. might be I might be wrong on that, but he was at, at least one of the. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen his like yeah his updates. It's pretty cool. Oh, it's a crazy, it's absolutely crazy what he's yeah, doing. Yeah, he's like got a nice little adventure. <laughs> yeah, good for him. It's like. We work with a lot of people like him who are mm-hmm. really like that's ex- that, that's these are the kind of characters that I really enjoy working mm-hmm. with, like supporting mm-hmm. people like guys mm-hmm. and girls that have like mm-hmm. these crazy adventures. They have this idea to do something crazy and you're like, you could do with a, a, nav- <laughs> a route planning and navigation app. So, um, yeah, if anyone has some crazy adventures and maybe a little bit of a following on Instagram or yeah, social media, yeah. then you can get in touch. With there me. Is on, on Instagram, there is a guy, one legged bike packer. Oh, yeah. He's a guy who was cycling through Africa for uh, to, to go fishing wow. in the Sahara Desert. Look. Yeah. Um, so he's going to be on the podcast. I definitely let him know. Oh, he's going to be li- he's going to be listening to that episode. So. Yeah, okay, here's, cool. a, here's another here's another adventurer working <laughs> with. Yeah, uh, he could do with it. Listen, Phil, uh, we we're gonna wrap up soon. Uh, there's mm-hmm. so many things that we never got a chance to get <laughs> into it. Uh, like for example, you're bike packing through Iceland. Iceland. Mostly Hebr- just, the just, Hebrides, just, Pharaohs, just, Iceland. <laughs> just very just very shortly, like how how was that? Like what 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 made you to, to go on that? Um, I wrote a blog on this uh, for Café du Cycliste, their mm-hmm. uh, bike cycling apparel brand. Mm-hmm. And I think it sums it up quite nicely because I realized that all of my serious bike packing adventures have been in places that are pretty much in the Arctic Circle. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I was wondering why I chose to go places like that instead of warm places like Croatia or Macedonia or something like this. And I think it's because I was just always really fascinated about how people live mm-hmm. in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I decided to move back to Kerry, I was also a bit worried about like, you know, not having loads of people around me that are into the same thing. And then mm. I've ended up finding myself going to like even more remote places and cycling <laughs> through like crazy landscapes and being absolutely fine with it. Uh-huh. Was it was it the solo trip or you had no always with friends? Yeah. Okay. So the I did like a I did a really cool trip um, where we jumped around the Hebrides by ferry uh-huh. Uh-huh. and then we camped on like the Isle of Jura and like other oh. places. And then the one in Iceland was with two friends of mine. That was hilarious. We did like a 10 day trip. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, the weather, the weather in the Faroes and Iceland. Mm-hmm. It's really tough if you're going by bike. Uh, just because like we had in Iceland, probably two or three days of really of nice weather, like clear skies where you could see everything. And then a lot of the other days, like we even did we had one day where we were just staying in the tents because it was pouring rain all day. <sighs> and this is in August. <sighs> Yeah, and it was the same in the Faroes. We we had a three day. It was an expedition three trip that's sponsored by Three T, and Patagonia. And we were doing like this. We wanted to do gravel, but there isn't a lot of gravel trails mm-hmm. in the Faroes, so it was primarily on road. But we wanted to um, link up all of the main like sites. Um, so we covered quite a big distance, but we were assisted by ferry and car. Okay. 
Um, we did some homestays, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. If anyone's going to the Faroes, definitely look up the option to stay with families there because mm-hmm. you can like they'll cook you dinner at night and then breakfast in the morning and you can really see how they live mm-hmm. because you can either stay with them or just just do the dinner and breakfast thing. Yeah, um, that's a really cool way to get to know um, the local culture. And mm. um, we saw we saw whale killing as well, which wasn't I'm not a fan of that. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we quite, got pretty quite. close to the culture. It's pretty hardcore. Mm-hmm. Pharaohs, absolutely amazing. Like, mm-hmm. but like they live a hard life out there. Yeah. But it's it's beautiful. And then um, Iceland was the same, a little bit friendlier because I think they. They can see the connection with Ireland as well. Apparently we've got some, <laughs> yeah, Vikings taking Irish women and settling Iceland and the monks and that whole thing. So <laughs> they <laughs> right. were like, you're Irish. <laughs> Great. Uh, Fiola, do yeah. you have any 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 concluders for our listeners? No, um, I suppose just um, give Camus a go, really, if you're interested in the outdoors and you feel like a little bit of exploring or the security and confidence of an app there to help you to not get lost <laughs> check out Kamut and um, if anyone wants to get in touch with me on any of the topics that we talked about uh, my email address again is um, fiola at kamut.com yeah we're gonna put that all over the show notes and Fiola you're an amazing person thank you very much you're welcome <laughs> thanks You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.